This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. Helen Farmer with you. Fantastic to welcome you to today's show. We're in conversation with Adam Griffin, occupational therapist, and inclusion consultant Louise Dawson, talking about the support that parents need for their diverse child getting into school, staying in school, and some of the tough conversations, plus the benefits of having neurodiverse children in the classroom on both sides. Dr. Shivali Verma was explaining how stress impacts our body and mind. And Andrew Lyons on hand for all of your legal questions, talking property law and more. Not one but two experts in the studio this hour. We've stolen away two very busy people uh, for your information, your listening pleasures, and you can get in touch on the usual numbers anonymously if you prefer. We're talking about what parents can do to ensure their neurodiverse child is getting support they need at school, and even before that, finding a school. We've got Adam Griffin, the head of occupational therapy at Kamali Clinic with us. Hello, Adam. Hello, lovely to be here. And at last, I've been wanting... Louise Dawson for a while. She is an independent consultant. She supports schools and organisations across the Middle East with inclusion and has recently opened a training centre in Motor City. She's been in Dubai for over a decade, including with three outstanding schools in Hong Kong for eight and works, yes, with schools, but also with implementing support for children from identification all the way through to progress and outcomes. Louise, thank you so much for being here. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, I think we're going to have quite a busy hour. Judging by the messages I've already had on the text line and on my social media, it's a bit of a hot topic. And I think beginning of term is actually a really apt time to talk about it because it can be when issues might be identified by school, where there could be conversations going around inclusion. Maybe there's a mismatch between the school you've chosen and the needs of your child. Um, So I'd love to find out a little bit about your mission with your work and what what gap you identified that you felt like was, was so important to address? Um, so I have three children who are all diverse and I have permission to talk about them. And I also have autism and ADHD myself. So I have... I began the journey um, as a parent and so I understand a lot of the challenges experienced by parents Um, and then we've done the whole journey. My children are out of school, out of university and out into the workplace which is a phenomenal achievement. It is. Um, Whilst I was working and in schools um, I I had to be because I needed the school places and I needed to be around them and my hours needed to suit them. So when they became independent I was able to go self-employed. One of the things that we struggle with here is training, access to um, experience, access to knowledge. um, And and for the schools, it's about that access. If we want to be trained, sometimes we have to fly those people in from overseas, which Mm -hmm. can be very expensive and that's quite prohibitive. So um, I've been training across the UAE and Middle East for over 10 years now. So I thought take the gauntlet, let's do it full time, see how we go. So on the family side then, Louise, what are mm-hmm. some of the challenges that you've identified with families here when it comes to inclusion in schools with any neurodiverse children? I think the biggest challenge is understanding everybody's child is one child and one child with autism is different to another child and I think the understanding around that is quite challenging and also the desire to fix children if you have a diversity, that's 
generally it for life you can overcome with strategies people like occupational therapy speech and language these people help us to overcome the challenges but the expectation that schools can remove that need completely and that parents can remove that need completely mm. is is a big challenge. Adam, we've talked about this in the past before about this idea of outsourcing. Okay, we've identified a problem and now I'm going to pay somebody and that might be an expert or it's certainly in schools when we have a, a paid for model of exactly as Louise says, now it's going to be fixed. How do you manage that kind of attitude when it comes up with parents and, and making sure that expectations are managed and you you, you align? Yeah, I, this is why I think OT has a very important part to play because the kind of focus in OT, as I've said on here before, is a very grounded, beautiful, but in a very everyday, ordinary sort of way. So you're looking, I'm not overly concerned about the diagnostic, like, label this child is coming in with. It's more about the success and quality of life they have on a day-to-day basis. So what does success look like? What does it mean to quote-unquote fix the child? Mm-hmm. How are they disabled? But for an OT... Being disabled means something is stopping you doing the things you need and want to do. That is, by very definition, you are disabled by whatever this thing is. So it might be the community that you're in. It might be the lack of understanding of those around you. Or it might be the way you hold a pencil. Or it might be the ability to pay attention in class. Mm -hmm. If you can overcome with a collaborative effort and with the help of professionals or parent education or your own two hands looking online, then you can help your child achieve their kind of full potential. To me, that's what success looks like. Can I ask then, with with that in mind, Adam, why is it so important to have a full picture of your child's specific neurodiversity? Oh, that's, I love that question. Because sometimes I feel people approach like allied health or even inclusion or any sort of learning support a bit like whack-a-mole. So you see, you see IEPs and there's one issue. Okay, we solve that. We solve that. We solve that. It doesn't really, I look at IEPs and okay, I might be. So let's, IEPs, Elise, can we tell them what IEPs mean? Yeah, you guys have got into a world that I'm not <laughs> part of. Acronyms already. IEPs is an individual education plan. We put them in place for our highest needs children in order to track progress, which is not on curriculum. Okay. Lovely. But the reason I threw that over to Louise then, it's very important for a school administration side of things to have that paperwork and to have an ability to track performance and take data. But at the same time, I need to know who this kid is. One of the first things I'll ask families is I'll look at the kid and say, what do you love? If you had all day Saturday and nothing to do, what would what would really make you happy? What if they say YouTube? That's okay. Well, I'll say, <laughs> who's their favorite YouTuber? Is it Jack Seth Guy or Mr. Beast or who? And then they're like, how does this boomer know who these guys are? <laughs> so I, it's, I need to get a full picture of not only this child's skills and occupational performance in discrete areas, but also who they are, what their motivations are, how their personality interacts with the behavior we're seeing or the success or anything else. That's a, But holistic can get a bit fluffy as well at the same time. So you still have to keep your eyes on the prize. You have to know where you're going. Louise, can I ask what can arise if you've got parents who might be in denial about a child's diagnosis or maybe not even want to acknowledge that there is an issue that needs to be addressed? Sure. I think I'm very similar to Adam in that I don't really, I, I've, obviously I, I like a nice identification because I think it does help us to understand what we're going to do for the child. But that isn't the end goal. The end goal is knowing what that child needs. So an identification through an ed cycle or occupational therapy or speech and language will tell us what a child needs, which helps schools Mm -hmm. to do what the child needs. But it's not the be all and end all. And I think if a family has um, aversion to that, 
then put it on hold. Families will get there when families get there. There is no race on this. There's no rush. I, I would just wait. Okay. We've got lots of questions we're going to be getting to. Louise Dawson with us today, independent consultant when it comes to sporting schools and families with inclusion. And Adam Griffin is here, head of occupational therapy at Kamali Clinic. We're going to be talking next about what are your expectations around communication with teachers about monitoring progress and how important is a support network with other parents of neurodiverse children? We're talking now about inclusion, the importance of it, of course, and what that can look like in real life. If you've got any issues around this, you're more than welcome to reach out. Adam Griffin is with us today, the head of occupational therapy at Kamali Clinic, and Louise Dawson, independent consultant. She supports schools and organisations with training with her centre in Motor City and has worked with schools as well as families from identification through to progress and outcomes. So, unsurprisingly, a popular hour and lots of you getting in touch with questions and queries on this. I wanted to know, Louise, and you've been instrumental in, as I said, training when it comes to inclusion, but also setting up inclusion um, departments as well. To your mind, what is the gold standard? What does excellent inclusion look like in a UAE school? That's really difficult because excellence for each child is individual. Mm. So excellence for me is where schools have knowledgeable staff that can incorporate those children into the classroom as much as possible and then support them in as many different ways as possible by having really strong networks across across the city. Um, it's about robust um, self-evaluation. It's about knowing where you are and knowing where you're going as a department and having a very clear, um, solid progress tracker for that for the school not just for the children okay um a message here with with no name on it i think it raises a really interesting point because as we alluded to earlier i mean in in other parts of the world you've got other complications about you know school district zones and where you're able to go to here it's the cost aspect and it's disruption and the message here saying how long should you give a school who seems to repeatedly fail your child in the classroom We're just over a year in with one school who's made endless promises but doesn't deliver. However, our child, boy, nine, high-functioning ASD, has some really nice friends and I'm worried about the disruption of moving him. Can we talk about communication, about progress and expectation, Louise? What can that look like or what should it look like? So again, it looks different for every single child. That seems a bit repetitive, but no, that, that's the that's, that's why inclusion is so difficult to get right because we have to look at each child as an individual. Now, if the child has friends and is socially accepted within the school, you're a long way towards inclusion. For me, that, that's the basis of what it's about. Um, if the school is um, attempting to make promises and they don't seem to be fulfilling them from your point of view, you need to talk to them. Mm -hmm. You need to understand what the challenges are. I haven't got it right for every single family that I've worked for because there are so many things in play, not just me, hundreds of teachers, a leadership, a a curriculum, blocks. There's so many different elements and, and parts to this picture. So I think it's about communication and I wouldn't give up after a year. Um, because it just you, you need to refine it for that child. Um, I would keep going, keep talking to them, reach out to other professionals as well. So heads of inclusion in this country are phenomenal. We have some of the best in the world, and, and I'm not just saying that. Um, they come here because it is private practice, so finance does come into it. So in the UK, I waited four years for my child to be identified. <sighs> here, I can get it done 
straight away because I can pay for it. Mm -hmm. So whilst payment is prohibitive for families, it can also be a massive benefit. So you can go to many different people in this city and seek advice and support and advocacy for you with the school. IEP meetings are very intimidating if it's you and the head of inclusion and the teacher and a senior leader. If you don't have someone on your team, it Mm -hmm. can be very, very intimidating. So get somebody to go with you to help take the emotion out of it, to keep on track for the children. Lots of messages coming in on this topic. A message here saying, why are we still struggling with bridging the gap between special and so-called normal communities? Um, Saying, why are teachers not being trained and only the SEND departments are? Do you have any insights there? I think that we're going at the speed that we can go. Mm. I've been here, like, like you said, 10 years. We have made phenomenal progress. I think this is one of the most inclusive cities led by KHGA and, and the framework that they have implemented. It's phenomenal. We have new teachers coming in every year. It's a cycle. I can go into a school and do some training now. I may have a completely different staff body next year. It's the nature of the beast. If you love your teachers, it's really hard to lose them. Mm-hmm. But if you don't like your teachers, it's That's really okay. good to have fresh <laughs> ones. So it's, it's, it's a cycle. Um, in terms of the wider community coming to grips with it, we're all quite old and we were all brought up in an environment where we didn't have inclusion. Um, Adam, can you speak to about that, that network as well? Because it's not just about in schools as well. What, what role do you think having peers, having parents, fe- you know, fellow parents who might have children with all, as you alluded to earlier, all range of additional needs? How important have you seen that being with your parents? Massively. That's almost like that is everything, really, because it can be very isolating. And like I say, this, I used to do a, a topic, Louise, you'd be very interested in this. So I used to do a training for parents called A Brighter Tomorrow, which was planning for the future, because sometimes as a, a parent of a neurodiverse child, you spend so much effort getting through the day. Or the teacher as well, they're just, okay, today was okay, let's, fingers crossed, touch wood, let's hope tomorrow is going to be a good one too. Whereas thinking for next week or the end of term or in the after graduation, that's so intimidating. So being able to, the reason I bring that up is the world can seem so scary. So it's tempting to circle the wagons and make it a toss against the world. But you're doing no one a favor by doing that. Mm-hmm. So you want to build a community. You want to live and experience and let your child be open to engage in the world that they are a part of. And there's so much opportunity there. And there certainly is a bit of risk. And it can be very anxiety producing and very scary. But you do want to kind of get out there. Having confederates, having people around you, you can lean on a little bit, whether it's playdates, that, even that little respite for parents as well. When you have a sleepover, it's fantastic. It's like uh, this weekend away, just a having cruise. a sleepover. Oh my goodness <laughs> me. But for your child as well, having those social connectedness, like one of the things I talked about before was I have a boy I'm working with a minute with executive function challenges and attention and focus. He gets distracted very easily. But one of the things I asked about is his friends in the class and sitting beside kind of peer supporters who there's a gentle encouragement to kind of follow along with the tide because that's aspirational. He wants to do like his buddy beside him is doing. Mm-hmm. It's not finger waggy. It's not it's not him against everyone else's seems to be doing better. Having that circle of support, it can be really beneficial for the child and avoid a lot of stress for the families. 
We've got a lot to get through because I've got a lot of messages on 4001. Please don't hesitate to get in touch if you want to have your say on this topic. Are you struggling to find the right school, to find the right support? Um, message from David here saying, I want to have my eight-year-old son assessed but find it absolutely costly. Furthermore, schools state they're inclusive but demand a full-time LSA, which then almost doubles the school fees. My son is autistic with difficulties in speech but reading age of 12, incidentally. Um, we're going to be speaking to that piece next. Um, we've also had a number of interesting questions about the role and responsibility of the school as well um, a message from H here saying hope this isn't insensitive but we're struggling with the behaviour of a child in my daughter's year two class lots of hitting very demanding of teachers and TAs time and I don't know how to cope with this a parent who clearly needs some additional help any advice <laughs> We're talking today about what parents can do to ensure their neurodiverse child is getting the support they need at school. We've got Louise Dawson with us today. She's an independent consultant. She supports schools and organisations with training. She's got her own training centre in Motor City, working with quite often the heads of said departments, teachers, um, educators as well, and helping families. A bit of a matchmaking process in terms of helping them find a school. We've also got Adam Griffin with us, the head of occupational therapy at Kamali Clinic. Louise, I know this is your bread and butter. And I, I know you've stood on this soapbox before and I, I want to invite you to step on it again and talk about the benefits of inclusion to not just the child who's had that diagnosis, but to that neurotypical child that's in that classroom as well. Can you, can you help us out there and explain? Yeah. Um, you said earlier about why is it so difficult culturally for us to accept diversity and to know what to do with these children, know how to speak about our children. And I think it comes from the fact that when we were being educated, we were not in classrooms with this type of diversity. So as a teacher, I had no, you know, before having my own children and no one told me I could have autistic children. No one knew that I was autistic at that age. So um, if we bring up the next generation who are comfortable sitting next to people who don't speak, comfortable sitting next to people who don't look us in the eye when we say hello, comfortable with people not being able to spell very well, not being able or being number blind or not being able to regulate their emotions or their physical. If we bring up a generation of children who are accepting and more tolerant than, than my generation, then we're going to have doctors of the future able to support people. We're going to have teachers who can automatically support people in the classroom because it was their experience. So generation on generation, we just get stronger mm. in the whole community. And then to those children who have been deemed neurodiverse, what are the benefits of them being in a classroom with neurotypical children? We have to grow up and we have to live in a neurotypical world and we have to learn the strategies to cope with that. So you can't change somebody's autism or their ADHD or their dyslexia, but you can um, work with young people so that they are accepting of themselves. The biggest challenge with diversity is mental health and it's not just because of COVID. We've been struggling with this for a long time. The inability to go out, the inability to socialise, the inability to work because we feel so different and so ostracised. So being accepted and being able to work in a neurotypical world is, 
it's, it's a two-way street. It's mm. good for everybody. Louise Dawson with us today. Um, we've had a number of messages. In fact, we've had an awful lot of messages. We are going to try and help as many people as possible. I might have to ditch Rod Stewart, which I'm not mad about, to be honest, Rod. Um, a message here from H saying, I hope this isn't insensitive, but we're really struggling with the behaviour of a child in my daughter's year two class. Lots of hitting. He's very demanding of the teacher and TA's time. And I don't know how to cope with it. As a parent, it clearly does need some additional help. Any advice? What I understand this, Adam, in terms of what what would you be saying? Because that's a frustration, and we've already alluded to the cost of schools today. But if you don't feel like you are getting the time that a teacher is promising because of mm-hmm. one or a few children who maybe do need some additional help and aren't getting it, how can you navigate that? Yeah, it's really challenging. I see this to a lot of parents and teachers as well. Sometimes because we work with kids and we have challenging behaviors and have lots of troubles with emotional regulation and things like that. It's rarely actually the behavior that's the big stressful part. It's not really knowing how to respond to that. So not really thinking, okay, so what's the plan here? What are we doing? And so just hoping for the best tomorrow. So a lot of this goes into the same bag of having open, kind of clear communication with the parents. It's not to say you have to warn other kids about this because there's a big stigma part of this as well. This kid is clearly struggling and any type of behavior is another form of communication. So there's a reason these things are happening. So it's you want to ensure that the school have a kind of plan in place. They don't have to go into... Uh, divulging things that are sensitive or betraying confidentiality. But you also have a safeguarding case with the other kids in class as well to make sure this child feels emotionally grounded. They feel, okay, they, what is making them feel dysregulated? What is, do they have access to movement breaks? Is the sensory environment a little bit of a challenge? So knowing that the teacher has a toolkit that they can draw from, that they have a good response in place to any of these situations and that the the school have an open collaborative communication with the family because one a lot of the times when I come to because schools and parents they don't come to see me if everything's going swimmingly I don't <laughs> see these families because there's a reason they come in knocking on my door and when I go into these meetings you want sometimes it can be a, almost like a combative relationship where it's two teams where you want it to be a collaborative combined kind of effort because everyone wants the same thing at the end point you're both trying there to be there for the betterment of the child mm-hmm. so it's maintaining that and engineering that so it's not a one-off meeting when there's a crisis it's an ongoing conversation it's a dialogue that you're both working together to support the child needs Uh, Louise, can I ask you about, to your mind, what does it mean to be an advocate for your child, especially when it comes to any necessary accommodations or modifications that they might need and and any advice any parent that might be struggling with that? So I would say the majority of parents are already experts in their own child. Mm. They may not be experts in the identification of that of that particular child depending on how old they are because it's a journey and when you start the journey you know very little Um, and you learn the parents learn from talking to the staff and the staff learn from talking so exactly what Adam was saying it's a collaborative thing and once you get into combat that's you know you need extra help when you've got that going on you need to inform yourself about strategies that you can use to help you communicate with school Um, So on my website, I have put a a help sheet for entering into a meeting with the school, which has got probably 30 questions that you may feel that you need to ask with um, with the school. Questions like, how can I help them better? Where could I go for support? What type of thing are you seeing in school that we need to support with at home? 
Um, so that, and then there are many, many ways that, that parents can work with schools. What about teaching our children to be advocates for themselves, Adam? This is a huge mm-hmm. part of what you do in terms mm-hmm. of building confidence as well. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So I, my favorite area of practice is working with these kind of the um, kind of middle school and high school age kids. And the idea of under, like know thyself, as the philosopher says. So on, having young people say, OK, this is the way I learn best. One of the questions in my initial consultation is, what do you wish your teacher knew about you? What would it help them kind of... Like, teach you better and understand about the way you like to learn and having this understanding especially for the kids I work a lot and get a lot of referrals for executive function so attention focus and concentration and all of these a lot of these guys come to see me and just think well I guess for me studying is just hard man and I'm just going to struggle through until I get to high school then I get to focus on something I actually enjoy Mm -hmm. no man you can understand and there's a lot of therapeutic use of self when they discover I'm a disorganized mess and lots of things but yet and all I still manage to soldier on reasonably well so you find a way that this isn't holding you back this isn't being disabling because you find tools and strategies that let you achieve your best and achieve your full potential regardless everyone has these little challenges for someone can be more significant but understanding what's difficult taking steps to make sure this isn't holding you back and then the child gets this sense of agency that they get a sense of control that they may have never had before Mm -hmm. and that's miraculous Message here saying all schools need an Adam to teach them how to accommodate neurodivergent. If we could clone you, we would. Adam Griffin, we would. Um, I want to go to the text line. If you've got any messages, you we are running out of time. As I said, I'm going to ditch Rod Stewart for these guys. Uh, Louise Dawson with us today. Over two decades of experience in this. And the head of occupational therapy, Adam Griffin, with us today. Um, we've had a message here um, saying, I've got a five-year-old boy. School says there's definitely an underlying issue. I suspect ADHD. School thinks ASD. The school of advisors to wait and see how his traits emerge before pursuing a diagnosis. Because it can be stressful, especially for the child. I'd love a book on parenting neurodiverse kids he's had some mad hyper episodes he gets very silly it's tough to calm him down we've tried breathing do your guests have any recommendations um louise do you want this <laughs> i think we could all list over a whole you go first. okay i have a couple of my favorites i'll rattle off really quickly and now these are tried and tested these are from the front lines only because i don't recommend a lot of texty textbooks because i feel almost i can feel parents roll their eyes and go oh, i have to read this whole it's thing another thing on my to-do well, list do you know this is the thing because i have books that parents read and like oh this is my life how did those are they watching me are they spying on me then they get to the last cover and like that was very interesting. I don't know what I'm going to do with that information. Mm. So I like the real, the things like that guides for Actionable. the field guides, almost like for your child. So for issues like that, do you remember the age of the child? Did they say the age of the child? Five. Five. Oh, great. So there is from a sensory perspective or an attentional energy perspective. There's books from the OT side of things. The out of sync child is a classic. Another one is raising a sensory smart child. If you're looking at ADHD kind of areas, doesn't even have to have the diagnosis, but ADHD 2.0 is absolutely fantastic. Things like smart but scattered, also fantastic. But a lot of these ones, they're really helpful because what I actually like to tell parents, I'll tell mom and dad both to get them an audible and listen to it separately and then discuss it afterwards. Because you want everyone to be on the same page and realize, oh, this makes a lot more sense. Mm-hmm. Another great one, actually, if there's emotional regulation issues going on, I always love is uh, the whole brain child. Love the whole brain child. It's one of the few that almost all my parents have seen it as like a eureka moment. So they love that one. You need to do a post on that. Just saying. Just giving you some content oh, ideas for, for, the, for the Instagram. Anything that you found useful I'm, over I'm the years? I'm going to take the bit about should we go for identification. Okay. So if the child is coping and happy and the school is coping and happy and the parents are coping and happy and you want to delay it, absolutely. 
if if any of those three parties are not coping, then you need to get support because we need to, you know, we know that early identification is crucial. We know that you can do a lot more, a lot quick, more quickly when they're younger. Um, so if everyone's coping, you can afford to wait. If people are not coping, you need to go and get some support. But it doesn't have to be a costly full full um, Spectrum, on yeah. um, assessment. It can be just speech and language or just OT. But take the advice. Heads of inclusion, teachers, we have seen thousands of children in our experience. And if they're saying something else is going on and we don't really know what that is, then I would get that investigated. Well, the thing I always come back to, because people, DM, one of the most common things I get DMs is, should we get an assessment? And I'll say, okay, why do you want it? Mm-hmm. So the reason I only ever do assessments is to give you a roadmap, give you the rec. My litmus test for assessments, actually, my sneaky Adam the OT test is how long are your recommendations? So if mm-hmm. it's just, oh, this is the information, Bula bus, fantastic. What am I meant to do with that? So what happens next? So giving you practical recommendations, when I go to meet teachers, I'll give them a toolbox. In your very next class tomorrow, try this. And it even says, beside my recommendations, useful, not useful, comment. So, and because it won't work for every kid. Mm -hmm. So you think, okay, like you said, are we being held back by anything? Is there anything you want to overcome? Are there recommendations that will help you? There is a place to have informational assessment just to get the diagnosis. Sometimes accessing services or claiming insurance can be helpful, but think, what am I doing this for? And if that helps you along the path, fantastic. Thank you. Um, we're running out of time. Uh, we've had a message from a teacher saying, I've got a teacher, I'm a teacher with a class of 29, 16 on a personal support plan, the IEP. It's impossible to provide the support they all need, but the school can't reject applications for finance reasons. Topic for another day, I think, unless Adam wants to add. Well, the only thing I can say as well, some therapists, we kind of pat ourselves on the back and said, oh, I give you the recommendations. Aren't I grand? You better do what I'm telling you. <laughs> no, teachers expect me to go there and make their job more complicated and put them under additional pressure. You have to be pragmatic and think, oh, okay, I'll go to the classroom because I want to see what your class looks like. And I also want to see you as a fr- me as a friendly face mm-hmm. to say, I'm here for you guys. I'm here to help this kid's day go a little easier, but also to give you a toolkit to make your job a little less stressful so you're not chasing your own tail all the time. So pragmatic. I, th- I feel like we need to have this dream team back in the studio. Um, however, we have run out of time. Louise Dawson, I know we've only really scratched the surface of it, the huge amount of work that you do, but if, is, there, do you have any kind of parting words? Is there anything that we haven't touched on today that you feel like we really useful for parents listening who might be thinking about seeking a diagnosis who might be struggling in this area it goes right back to what what we said right at the beginning this is a long journey this is not today this is not this month this is not this year this is a lifelong journey so take today try and remain without emotion because emotion gets in the way of a lot of these things um and and see it as a long journey and do what you can today and that's good enough do you know what? The Good Enough Parent, another excellent book. Um, it's louisedawson.com if you want to find out more about the trainings, school support, parent support. Adam the OT is there on Instagram. He might cost you a fortune in Flying Tiger. Thank you very much. That's what we did at the weekend. Best shop. It's amazing, isn't it's it? It's a great shop. Um, if you want either of those or both of them, you can just send me the word child and I'd be very happy to send you links. Guys, thank you both so, so much. We'd love to have you back. Pleasure. As I said, obviously a hugely important topic and one that we're really happy and honoured to be addressing on the show. It's Afternoons with me, Helen Farmer. We're heading over now to producer Poonam to find out what's happening on your roads. As I said, if you want details of our two experts, just send me the word child and I will send you the links. <laughs> Between the endless errands, financial concerns, job, family, starting a family, 
It is no wonder that stress symptoms are soaring these days. Now, chronic stress and anxiety can really negatively impact not only your mental health, but your physical health too, in more ways than you might realise. We're talking about how to deal with it, prevent it in the future, and of course, answer any questions you have now with Dr. Shafali Verma, an integrative medical biohacker, educator, and a little bit stressed yourself right now. Doc, how are you? What happened? I mean, I got into this taxi um, and it was his first day on the job, poor man. Uh, Can't read Google Maps. And I ended up basically running here from across the road. So it couldn't be more apt. That's true. I did say that when I walked in saying, you know what, this could not be a more perfect, you know, uh, topic for today. Do you feel like stress is on the rise? Yeah, I I actually do. I think basically the pressure is on the rise. And because there's so much pressure to make it in this life, and I think with social media, looking at, again, I always bring this up because I think social media gives this impression that everyone is doing far better than you. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it ends up putting a lot of pressure on yourself and therefore you're stressed when you, you know, quote unquote, don't make it. Yeah. I wrote an Instagram post last week because I'd spoken to Robin Sharma who's big on the get up at five o'clock, do X, Y, Z. And my point to him was I'm basically being sick of told to work hard <laughs> all the time to like hustle and do, you know, do that. Do I'm like, why isn't it enough just to be content? I mean, 100%. You know, I had this conversation yesterday with my sister about uh, my kids are now in year six mm-hmm. and it's <clears throat> about getting into year seven and whether or not they want to try going into other schools. So mm-hmm. should they apply And with that, a lot of people are doing a lot of, you know, extra tutoring and stuff like that. And I said, well, no, because I think that in life, as you get older, there's a lot more pressure uh, and it's difficult. Why am I going to put this added pressure on them now when they actually, luckily, they're in a school that automatically you can get into like sort of year seven and go into high school. Do I really need to stop this and make them do these exams and make them question whether they're good enough or compare them to other children? (sighs) And I said, I just don't think they need that at this point. It's, I think that's a great topic, actually, which I'm going to steal for a future show around yeah. tutoring. Because if you are requiring a level of expensive, extensive tutoring in order to get into a school, is that the right school for them in the first place? Exactly. I, I'm not a particularly pushy parent academically. I'm just not. I mean, I, I I'm kind not. of wish I was. Do you know what? <laughs> you know, you say that, but actually, what you are doing without realizing it is is you're trying to create a life that you don't want your kids to have to endure the same things that you have seen mm-hmm. with the experience of being an adult now. Yeah. And I feel the same. As much as people keep telling me, "Why don't you? Why don't you?" It's like actually, I don't need to. No, they what? don't need to. So I guess what I'm saying is. I'm trying to lean out at the minute. I'm trying to say no to more things. I'm trying to recognise when I've overcommitted because I am really bad for saying, yeah, happy happy to come and talk to you for free. Uh, hi, I'm happy to have a chat with you when I actually don't want to. So I'm trying to... Dr. Um, Thraya, our kind of resident psychologist, would be pretty proud of the boundaries that I'm there trying to put yeah. in place. But I think I think you're right, though. I think in general, stress is increasing for a huge number of reasons across all age demographics. Correct. We think of stress being like this kind of, you know, a harried office worker who's... It's not. It's, no, it's not, not. It's not just in the workplace. It is in our kids. It is. It is in, you know, mums who are at home with their kids. You know, I've been reading a lot about parental rage recently, which is very, very real. Yeah, it is. Um, and I think it's interesting that we're highlighting this across across all across all areas. Now, can I ask you about those physical symptoms of stress, or taking it further, health issues that can advi- um, kind of re- arise as a result of 
chronic stress. So one of the most common things that people associate with a new diagnosis of an autoimmune disease is actually going through a stressful time. So when you often when somebody has a new diagnosis, new symptoms of, say, something that was brewing, but it comes to the forefront, often they've gone through a stressful sort of situation. But stress, chronic stress directly impacts the digestive system, which is why actually people, when they're stressed about, say, going on stage, they get those butterflies in their tummy and so on and so forth. it actually drops all the good bacteria in the digestive system, can puncture tiny holes in the digestive system. You can develop new food sensitivities because of having chronic stress. Um, sleep disturbances, over an extended period of time, you end up going through what we call sort of like adrenal dysfunction, but there are various stages of that, that burnout. You don't end up burnt out. You go through a whole series of different symptoms before you end up burnt out. Or before you even notice you've got to that point, because presumably we're busy we're not really listening to our body you're or, coping yeah you're coping you're popping until you're pop- not coping you're popping a few pills and covering up what you might be experiencing correct but like low immune system getting sick all the time your person you know next to you gets sick and you're sick for three weeks or you keep getting everybody's vi- that is showing you that your adrenals are tired we are talking stress on the show this afternoon dr shafali with us um i'm curious to ask dr shafali next why does stress manifest differently in different people For me, it might be sleep. For you, it might be skin. It could be clenching your jaw. But why do we experience it differently? Dr. Shafali Verma is with us today. She is an integrative medical biohacker, an educator, a doctor, of course, as her uh, title suggests. And we're talking stress today. Um, And I'm curious, whenever I speak to my friends about how stressed they are, it's different things that come up. You know, my I have a friend who has problems sleeping anyway, but when she's really stressed, she has problems falling asleep and staying asleep. For me, I had eczema when I was younger and I got little eczema flare-ups sometimes. Um, for another friend, it's clenching his jaw and he doesn't realise he's doing it until he goes like, oh yeah, I feel like my teeth might crack. Mm. Why do we exhibit stress? Why do our bodies exhibit stress in, in different ways, in, in in certain ways. So, I mean, we're all individual for a start. Like, so we all don't have the same environment leading up to that stressful event. So often things are already kind of brewing and stress sort of like brings it out, like you said, eczema. Eczema wasn't caused by stress, but it came out in stressful times because that's when the immune system drops. Mm-hmm. Um, and often, you know, what we choose to eat during stressful times may change. <laughs> and therefore that may, you <laughs> know. you're going, Helen, right? have you been binging yeah, on red on licorice binging. again? Yes, but, I have. <laughs> but honestly, that's kind of like how it happens. So if people's sw- sleep quality is bad, um, often, you know, when they're stressed, that also can change sort of what they choose to eat. It actually depletes magnesium. So stress depletes magnesium. Sleep quality can be affected. Muscles relax with magnesium. So if you have lack of it, uh, whether it's magnesium or other nutrients, things like, you know, sodium and so on and so forth, we actually end up, you know, getting rid of much more of it and therefore Mm. require more of it. And that can affect the clenching and the muscle spasms and cramps in their their legs and so on and so forth. Uh, But things are already kind of like 
you know, brewing, like I said. So mm-hmm. it's not that this caused this. There's a correlation when I'm stressed that it happens. But this is kind of like already happening. And but we're coming to light now because we're in a weakened sort of situation. And presumably with some aspects of how stress manifests, we might have coping mechanisms that don't actually serve us, such as drinking alcohol. Exactly. Or eating rubbish. Or- and that, and honestly, that's what I found in COVID uh, happened you had the population that really looked after themselves and says okay look I'm stuck at home but I'm going to wake up every morning I'm going to maintain my routine actually I'm going to sit and have dinner with the family which I've not been able to do I'm going to find a time I'm going to be able to train and I'm going to and they have a much better lifestyle Mm -hmm. and then you have those people who kind of let go of themselves Mm -hmm. right and that showed people how they cope differently you know when you're stressed what makes you happy is a lot more sort of refined carbohydrates and so on and so forth. We need the, like the alcohol to kind of like wind us down. But all that affects over time start to break other things down that was, you know, kind of happening. And that's why different coping mechanisms affect different people. When it goes to the text line, we've had a message here saying, I've been through so much in the past year. Cancer scare, job loss, a travel ban, a result of not being able to pay. I realize this. Focus on what you can change and change that. Whatever you can't, don't focus on that. And yet by doing it with baby steps, gradually things seem clearer. Do you know what? I love that. So my first video that I did where on Instagram when I couldn't go to the clinic anymore, I was like, wow, I talk all the time. What am I going to do at home? <laughs> Let me start doing videos. The first one that I did was actually controlling the controllable. And this is exactly how I explain things. We have one bucket and our bucket's called stress. That has both the controllable and the uncontrollable bucket of you know stress. The only way we can stop this bucket from overflowing is by controlling the controllable. Give us some examples. So we, if, if you've just tuned in, Dr. Shafali had a bit of a rough ride here in the taxi. Um, what was going through your head and going, okay, I'm going to be late for the radio. This guy doesn't know what he's doing. Um, what, what can I do in this situation? So number one, I helped him because I could see that, look, I'm going to have to take control of the situation. That is in my control. I can see he's going the wrong way. I called up the studio and said, look, looks like I'm going to be late. What are our options? You know, take a deep breath, get here, do the best. At least I'm not We didn't have an accident, at least. I mean, there's so many other things that could have gone wrong. I really tried to manage what I could manage in that moment. Come, talk about it straight away, not pretend like everything was hunky-dory like it always is when I come in. The situation was different, Mm -hmm. and I wasn't really in control of him. I did what I could to get here. And then bigger picture, I mean, my goodness, this listener, and thank you for for reaching out with you know, that that generosity of of your experiences talking, you know, cancer scare, job loss, you know, the big the big things um that have this big overarching effect on our mental health and physical health. And we're talking about control what we can control in those situations. And what, I call them the day eight daily multipliers for me. Let's hear about you them. You know, there are eight things that I think people should look into trying to do their best to do them well every day. So what you eat, what you choose to eat. Don't change that when you're like, you know, not feeling great because often those things that you're now changing is going to probably make you feel worse. You're not going to make as many good choices. Same with drinking. Movement, right? People say, you know, when you exercise the happy, you know, sort of like, you know. It's really annoying, but it's true. (laughs) It is. It's the kind, you always feel better for it. So move well, but move correctly. That doesn't mean go smash yourself during times where you're tired. Oh, I still got to, you know, run this 5K. But move, you know, appropriately to what you're feeling at that moment. Sleep. You know, don't steal sleep. You know, that's really important in terms of recovery. 
meditation, your thoughts, like, you know, it, it's okay to talk to people. Uh, don't cut off your social. A lot of times they feel like, oh, I'm having a bad day. I'm not going to talk to anyone. I'm not going to go out. But your social environment matters, you know, making sure that you, you know, during COVID, are you the person that actually went on Zoom and started to chat to people? Or were you so isolated? Isolation is a, is, is a form of torture, mm-hmm. you know? So can you, you know, manage that better? Um, air quality. You know, and when I say that, it's because a lot of times I've, you know, come across people who are not aware of that sort of air quality, where it be mold, whether it be, okay, yes, we have, we don't have great outside sort of, you know, air, but can we add an air purifier, for example, small, simple things. So mentally you think you're doing something to manage it that you can control. Yeah, you're feeling somewhat Correct. empowered. And I thought, I don't, and then the other one is actually taking control of your health. So I say, call it detoxification, but I'm like, what can you manage? Can you do your medical? Can you be on top of your nutrients? Can you be on top of all those things as opposed to, I don't care about myself. I'm going to let myself go. That's not the best time. Mm-hmm. If you're going to let yourself go and you're stressed, it's only going to make you feel worse. Dr. Shafali with us today. If you've got any questions for her regarding stress, I'm curious, how can you help someone in your life who is stressed out. We'll be talking about that next. But going back to the health side, gut health, nutrient absorption, are there any foods, any supplementation that can help with that? We'll be finding out. If you feel so inclined, tell me on 4001 how stressed out you are out of 10. I'd be very interested. And why? We are talking stress on the show today, and I think we're all juggling an awful lot and maybe don't give ourselves credit for everything that's on our plates, whether it is family, finances, jobs. I mean, my goodness, judging by the messages I've got coming in for the legal clinic, an awful lot of issues around property as well. So I hope you're okay. And if you do need a bit of extra support, Dr. Shafali Verma is here today. She is an integrative medical biohacker and educator. Uh, What's your stress level, do you think, Doc? Uh, I probably would say good, like, I would say six at the moment, but I've made a lot of changes in my sort of work-life balance. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think now that the kids are a little bit bigger, uh, I've managed to, you know, create or curate my professional work, which is kind of nice because they're more independent now. Mm -hmm. So I've kind of waited and I feel like I'm trying to do, I'm trying to practice what I preach because I think that that's only fair to expect other people to follow me. Um, but yeah, I would still say it's like a good five, six for sure. What are some of the things that you do or don't do on a daily basis to manage your stress? I probably don't meditate as much as I should do. But then does that feel like something on the to-do list and that stresses you out because you don't do do it? You know, I did a post on that actually, um, on trying to meditate perfectly is not the right way of (laughs) meditating. (laughs) And I actually said that because I remember when I first started to meditate, uh, I was like, oh, it has to be quiet. It has to be dark. It has to be, I have to sat up. I can't lie down. I can't, there's all these like perfect ways of doing it. And then I realized that that's just not perfect at all. And then I used to find myself just finding times where on my own, drop the kids to school, sit in the car, have five minutes, meditate. Patient counsel, delayed, five minutes, meditate. Like there's no perfect way to meditate. Okay, but when you say five minutes, what are you, what are you doing? You're just sitting with your eyes closed. Because if I sit my, my I like, eyes closed. I like, no, I like the guided meditation for okay, me. Okay, good, me too. Because yeah. if I don't have that, my brain's like, you haven't done this, you need to buy that. You know. Correct, you have your lists kind of like going on. Totally. But I think the guided meditation, I think for the beginning, it is a practice. And by practice, that means you have to do it enough times to be able to control. Mm-hmm. And this is where I think is the most power for me. The most powerful part of meditation for me is the fact when I realize that I can control my thoughts. So if you can sit and then be like, 
actually zone out and listen and nothing comes in, then every time you feel like your thoughts are going crazy, you have this added feel like power that I know I can do this. And that takes practice. Mm. It is a practice. I don't do that enough at the moment. I've kind of got out of practice, but that's something on my to-do list. I'm so far off that. <laughs> um, Julie Mallon, sleep consultant, saying we know from so much data that one of the biggest triggers for stress is sleep deprivation. 100%. It's, it's which one came first, though. Exactly. Right? So people who have chronic stress, part of this adrenal dysfunction that I talk about going into burnout is they get to the stage where they are tired but wired. And that tired but wired is because the cortisol at night is too high. We're supposed to have cortisol high in the morning that slowly decreases, allows you to rest, recover, wake up high, and so on and so forth. But when it flips and you're stressed at night, it's because the cortisol is too high. So now you're tired, but you're exhausted, Mm -hmm. right? And that then affects sleep quality, which makes you wake up having less recovered. And then it creates this vicious cycle. That's what needs to, that's when we can take the nutrients to help decrease the cortisol at night. So that's when I urge people to say, take magnesium and things like that to support their sleep quality. You know, making sure that what they eat at night doesn't, isn't more active, you know, so like white meats as opposed to red meats or things that don't require so much digestion. Timing of your food makes a difference. Is your room dark? Is it cold? All the other sleep hygiene things to optimize that part of your, your day, which affects routine and quality of, you know, the next day. It's the irritability for me. If I haven't slept well, (laughs) something that would be water off a duck's back if I've had seven, eight hours sleep will tip me over the edge if it's been more like four or five hours. It's 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 how capable. And that's it. And when you know how good you can feel and you're not feeling it the next day, nothing is going to go to plan. Mm -hmm. And when nothing goes to plan, what ends up happening is that you're getting stressed in that time, in that moment. It's worsening. But stress, when it depletes magnesium enough your stress tolerance decreases. Little things become big things Mm -hmm. because of that. Dr. Shafali with us today. If you've got any questions, 4001, what's happening uh, on your stress levels? A message here saying probably a nine or 10 because of a recurring emotional pattern. Interesting. If you want to, Jennifer's saying, I rearranged my living room at 4.30 in the morning. Wow. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people have had a bad Monday. Just looking at social media, I've seen really? friends, friends crying in cars, friends oh, talking about kids pushing them over the edge in terms of, yeah, I feel like something's something's going on right now. Do you think enough people talk about it? Talk to people, you know? I did this video where I was like, you know, you got to share the load. Do we share the load? Is there still a, you know, talking trip? I know a lot, of, in clinic, one of the questions I will ask 100%, any of my patients can, you know, uh, testify to this. I'll say, have you been through any emotional traumas and they'll be like now in my life I'm like in your life because what how you start off your life matters mm-hmm. right and it all is an accumulative yeah. sort of situation going on um Lynn, uh, Lena's been in touch saying does your doctor believe that stress can affect the ability to get pregnant yes oh, I didn't even need to read the rest no. of your question <laughs> really yeah you know stress affects the immune system immune system hormones, uh, stress. I mean, if you think about it, the body's really smart. And I say this in clinic. I say the two things your body does not need to do if it is undergoing any stress is lose weight and have a baby mm-hmm. because the body knows, right? You, and, and even if I look at things like on a scientific level, when I talk about like probiotics, your own good bacterias, you know, your nutrient absorption, uh, what you choose to eat. So things like maybe more inflammatory foods, 
if there's more inflammation in the body, the body knows. It's like a hostile sort of environment for this, like, you know, embryo, you know. So, yes, definitely. Thing is, though, as soon as you say to someone... <laughs> don't get stressed. Don't get don't stressed. Worry. And then, yeah, don't worry. Then you'll get... I, I, so, I've just said to you off air, my husband and I played in a paddle tournament last night. I was so nervous. He is like Mr. Punctual. To his mind, being on time is five minutes late, okay? So, we were there 20 minutes early. Oh. I'm sitting in the car. He's playing the Rocky theme tune to get us in the right mindset. Getting I'm pumped. like, I'm like, farms. I am really not looking forward to this. I am so nervous. He's like, don't be nervous. Oh, I'll just not be nervous then. That's helpful. Thank you. Um, but yeah, as soon as you say to someone, oh, don't, you know, it's like you know when someone's looking for love. Oh, you'll find love when you stop looking for it. Oh, you'll get pregnant when you stop stressing about it. It's it's oh, how you know I have a couple. I do have couples who come in to see me if they're struggling to get pregnant. And often when they're kind of toying with the idea of going down sort of the assisted, you know, and, and having IVF and so on and so forth, I always say that when you are trying, I think it's really important to stop looking at each other as, you know, a sperm cell and an egg, like, mm. because that changes the relationship. And when the relationship changes and you put so much pressure on it, it does actually get worse. And then nothing is comfortable anymore, you know, and, and that the body is very aware of those things mm -hmm. mentally, but nutrient wise, immune system wise, it drops the immune system. You know, I, I think people don't realize that chronic stress is, is, is actually, I say it's, it's a silent killer. Mm -hmm. You know, it really is. It's interesting to come back to your point about isolation as well. You know, that I keep on hearing this, you know, loneliness is the new smoking. Yeah, hundred percent. I, I mean, I did a podcast on that also in terms of loneliness and, and that everyone is becoming choosing to become a little bit more more isolated. But when you're stressed, you either have that person who's comfortable talking or searching for like therapy or talking or, you know, helping them with their thoughts. And then you have that person who just completely like shuts off, mm -hmm. you know, and that's dangerous. Can we come back to food? Yes. It's one of my favorite topics. Um, you were talking there about um, inflammatory food. What do you mean by that? And are there any foods that can be helpful when you're feeling stressed? So... When I talk about inflammatory foods, most of the time it's different for every individual for me. But I think that a lot of times people, depending on their gut function, might have like food sensitivities and things like that. So you consume things that make you happy aren't always the right things for the immune system. But in general, a more of a Mediterranean type diet is considered the least inflammatory sort of type of food. Uh, so that's one thing. The second thing obviously is decrease. Sugar is known to be inflammatory. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, alcohol is, is a type of sugar. It is quite inflammatory. And so it affects sleep. It affects so many other things. But I normally tell people to refrain from or try to be aware of what they are consuming uh, because often you do tend to go down the more sort of like comfort sort of eating, more sort of drinking more coffees Definitely. that go up and down that ends up affecting everything. Uh, anonymous message here saying, can you please clarify the statement about losing weight and stress? Um, I'm pushing a stress level of 20 and everyone tells me to lose weight because it will help me cope. I will add I am stress eating, but does weight loss help with stress? Well, I think it's the stress eating that we need to, to manage as opposed to trying to lose weight because now you've just added a whole new level of I need to lose this weight that that's going to become even more stressful if it doesn't happen as fast as you wish totally. for it to. But, you know, like we were saying in, in sort of the break, you know, stress affects thyroid, you know, activity and function and that can often 
of course, you know, have people's metabolism not where they would want it to be. Uh, eating more carbohydrate or, you know, relative to the other macronutrients, be it proteins and fats, is going to create an elevated insulin, you know, um, production. And insulin's main job is to store this excess body, sh- you know, sugar, as it were. It stores it in fat if it's not utilized, you know. So, it, it, again, it comes what, what's worse, you know, yes, if you've gained weight and that's stressing you out, then you need to think about ways in which you can actually improve your body comp in a healthy way. Uh, you know, and that's where you seek advice, seek a coach, have somebody look at your lifestyle and really talk to you to understand what kind of person you are so that it doesn't add stress. I tell people that in clinic all the time, you know, whatever we do in here, it should not add more stress to you. Totally agree. And I think there is a, a real, there's a lot to be said for, you know, as exact, exactly seeking out an expert, getting your numbers checked, control what you can control instead of spinning out and catastrophizing because when you exist in that state, you're not going anywhere. No, and, and I think that's another thing in terms of, you know, you can't, I, I don't treat a paper. I don't treat a blood result. I will treat the person with that blood result. So depending on that person, will dictate what's their priority. Thank you so much. Really, really valuable topic there. I hope it's de-stressed people a little bit. Message here saying the full moon is close. Do you know what? I am quite affected by the full moon. So I am too, actually. Are you? <laughs> yeah, I am. Okay, we'll talk about another topic for another, <laughs> another day. day. In the meantime, though, Dr. Shafali, where can people find you online and in real life? So obviously I have my Instagram, uh, Dr. Chef. Uh, I also have a website, drfali.com spelling out the letter the word doctor d-o-c-t-o-r and I am at Iraq uh, which is a clinic in Healthcare City to see you know patients that are here in the UAE and doing corporate work as well which is something we're going to touch on in the future too if you want those details just send me the word doc I will send you those links Um, some fantastic resources there on the Instagram and um, of course taking clients too Dr. Shafali thank you so so much It is your legal clinic here on Dubai I-103.8. I don't say this lightly. It's one of the busiest hours on your radio. And the man to guide us through property law and more this hour is Andrew Lyons, partner at Davison's & Co. Law Firm. How are you, sir? I'm very well. Thank you, Helen, for having me along. Have you had a little coffee before joining us today? Because you're going to need it. I'm a non-coffee drinker, Same. believe it or not. But, uh, yep, water is as good as it gets for me. See, I have a little cheeky... Uh, not sponsored in any way Diet Coke before the show um, but people look at me when I say I don't drink tea or coffee like I'm a giant toddler likewise yeah. yeah it's strange isn't it but it's good I feel like it's the only thing I feel smug about when I go to the doctor I'm convinced the more you have the more dependent you become Thank if you, you never Bob. get on to it I you thought when it. I'd have kids that I would it would be a necessity I just don't like the taste and I had a teacher and I'm going to name him he's not in Dubai Miss Allowison he was our art teacher he was pretty creepy and he had teacher coffee breath and it put, put, it, put me off for life <laughs> That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. So we have got lots of messages coming in for you, Andrew, but before we get to the text line, what's keeping you busy right now? What are your areas of specialty, and what have we stolen you away from your office from attending to? Well, I think the busiest areas generally at the moment have been real estate-based landlord-tenant disputes, Mm -hmm. buyer-seller disputes. We see that because of the rising market that we're in puts puts the demand on either sellers wanting to get as much value out of a property sale, which would 
uh, require them to basically get rid of a tenant mm-hmm. if that tenant's paying a low rate. Well, let's let's head off a number of messages that I'm anticipating on the show today. Can you explain in very clear, hopefully non too legal easy chat, exactly what a landlord would need to do to lawfully eject a tenant? What is the process? What are the expectations? Yeah, so a landlord, in order to evict a tenant, would have to first and foremost give 12 months notice in writing, and that would have to be served by courier or notary public. There are only four grounds to evict a a tenant. Um, Selling the property is is the most prevalent, and then thereafter using it for personal use, family member of uh, next of kin or first degree, for example. It couldn't be... My, you know, my stepsister's cousin's kid. No, that would be too far removed. And then the other two would be demolition or substantial renovation work. There are a host of additional grounds which give rise to having a right to evict a tenant. But those relate to circumstances where a tenant has been misusing the property. Okay. Hope that helps a bit of clarity if that is the issue that you are struggling with today. I've actually had just a message from Rob here saying we've been served our 12-month eviction notice on our villa correctly. Well done for to your landlord. But do we need to stay for the duration or could we leave the contract early? We're paying in four checks and would like to leave before the last check is handed over. Is there does the law say anything or is it strictly between tenant and landlord an agreement that you can come to? Yeah, it's a good question. Generally speaking, I would say check your lease. Most leases, the standard lease terms are you as a tenant would have to pay two months um, compensation and you'd have to give two months notice if you were going to basically leave the premises Mm -hmm. early. What I would say in this market is that actually a landlord might be quite happy to hear that. Delighted to see the back of you, Rob. No, nothing personal. (laughs) And so rather than offer up the two months notice and two months compensation, have a conversation and I'm sure you'll find a kind of middle ground that keeps everybody happy. We have got questions coming in for Andrew Lyons in the show this afternoon. Your chance to have your legal questions answered on the show this afternoon. Andrew Lyons is with us. He is a partner there at Davison & Co. And on hand to answer anything that's coming in on 4001. Message here, and anonymous, and as I always say, absolutely fine to leave your name up here saying, what is the role of the estate agent after a contract is signed? Once I move in and find issues, water leak, dirty water tank, etc.? It's an interesting question. I would say that the the answer generally depends on whether, for example, that is a real estate agent who is uh, affiliated with a developer and you're buying direct from a developer um, through that agent, or if that's just on the secondary market in the traditional way. Mm-hmm. I would say that really the agent's scope, his job is really to connect you to the property. Uh, they're not there necessarily to give you legal advice on the contracts. And so I would always say that you should get advice from a lawyer to help ensure that you've got the right contractual. What if it's a rental? What if this agent has just has hooked you up with a rental? Well, if it's a rental and usually the tenants would pay an agent or a broker for putting them into a new rental property, it would very much again depend on what the nature of the, re- the relationship between the landlord and that agency is mm-hmm. because they may not have an ongoing relationship, but often they do, and they are the they are the local agents for that property and for that landlord. In which case, they would be the point of contact. But that's definitely a question you should ask when you're entering into these types of arrangements. And presumably, having a look at what's mentioned when it comes to maintenance in your contract as well. This was something that tripped us up a few years ago. We spent 
thousands on leaky water heaters, on just dodgy plumbing in general. And he was like, well, well, it's not in the contract. Yeah, it's a, it's a good point because in your lease, in your contract, it will usually specify that there is a certain value mm -hmm. below which the tenant bears responsibility for and above which the landlord bears responsibility for. That value is usually in the region of 500 dirhams. So if any item of repair or maintenance exceeds 500 dirhams, then it would be the landlord's obligation and below that would be the tenant's. But it does depend on what it is. Hope that helps. All right, to the landlord side, a message here saying, my tenant has misused my property, causing physical damage significantly deteriorated, including damaging the gas detector. What legally correct actions can I take as a landlord? Yeah, that's a good question. So you've obviously got a deposit in play, which is to protect a landlord in circumstances where there are damages sustained to a property by the tenant's um, neglect or not looking after the property during his occupancy. Um, what you can do is you can apply to RERA or you can get an independent third party expert to come out, assess the damages, quantify what it would cost to repair those damages and then you can engage with the tenant during the period of his occupancy to reach an agreement as to you know, re reimbursement of that. Otherwise you've got the deposit to fall back on and if the deposit is less mm -hmm. than the amount of the damage repair then you have a recourse through RERA to uh, to claim additional sums. Okay, hope that helps. Um, it's interesting to because we get both sides. You know, we have we have landlords, we have tenants. Um, if you've got any questions for Andrew Lyons, get in touch. You're more than welcome to reach out on four zero zero one. You've got the ARN Play app, and of course, you've got the WhatsApp too. Now, you don't need to put your name on those messages. We truly understand. The most important thing is making sure that you. Have a, have a place to come for a, for a chat, if you will. Sometimes that is on the phone um, and sometimes it is indeed, as I said, on the text line too. Um, now, we are going to be giving you a chance to win some tickets to Global Village in just a few minutes. Same numbers as getting in touch here, 4001 and 04871 We have got Anifa on the phone. Anifa, great to have you with us. How are you? Thank you. How can we help? What's, uh, what's happening in, in your world and property land? Yeah, so the rates have gone up in the area that we live. Um, it's going to be our second year. Sorry, going to our third year. So when we went to our second year in this current occupancy, they increased it without the 90 days notice. Mm -hmm. And to you can leave. So, so um, that is going to happen again this year, February. So he, last time, didn't give the adequate notice on rent increase, but you figured it was too costly to go to Rira and rent increase could yeah, be around the corner again. So is it a case of exactly. what should you do? All right, and, Andrew, if this was your best yeah. friend and they were in this situation, what would you be advising? Well, what I would say is that there's usually two reasons why the landlord is doing this. One, because they don't understand what they should be doing. And the other is because maybe they're hoping the tenant doesn't understand and they get away with it. The obligation and the responsibility is on the landlord to give you the 90 days notice it's on him to evidence that he has given you that notice. If he has not, then you're not obliged to pay the increased rental amount. And so if it comes to the renewal date and he is still digging his uh, heels in, you can file what's called an offer and deposit case with RERA. And if you go on the online RERA website, there is a, a link to that. It's actually very user-friendly and it guides you through is that there, process. What about cost, cost elements? <laughs> <laughs> and <Anifa> and I <laughs> are on the same page. <laughs> What, what, exactly. what are we talking in terms of initial outlay and ultimately, you know, if it comes down to a dispute, 
if it is the landlord's fault, would he be covering the costs? I'll need to check what the current cost of actually filing that offer and deposit is. It's under 500 dirhams, so it's quite user-friendly. Oh, okay. And in the event that you are successful, then uh, the landlord would have to pay uh, a kind of compensation fee to RERA for those services. But, um, yeah, I would say it's on. It's his responsibility. Yeah, it's his responsibility to make mm. sure he gives you the 90 days notice. What you need to be sure is that you, you do file that offer and deposit before the renewal date because there will obviously be the original rental portion, which is undisputed. All that is disputed is the increased portion, and you want to make sure that you at least lodge the, the payment for the undisputed portion. Anifa, the law is on your side, and it's cheaper yes, than it you think. Indeed. Please keep us posted, okay? Um, Thank you, I will. All do. the very best. Stay strong, because yeah, he's, he's chancing his arm, as my dad would say. So he really is. All the best. Take care. <laughs> right now. Thanks. One of the busiest shows on your radio. It is no surprise because who doesn't want or need some free legal advice? Test the waters with us this afternoon. Get in touch on 4001. You've got the ARN Play app as well, of course. And you're more than welcome to give us a call. It's 04871 The man on hand to answer your questions is partner at Davison & Co. Law Firm, Andrew Lyons. We won't be talking rugby. This is not my specialty diaries. But what we can go is go to the tax line. Um, we've had so many messages relating to property law, and we're going to try and get through as many as we can between now and five o'clock. Message here saying real estate during 2019 and 2020 were not entertaining personal visits. Visits. The Ajari contract was not renewed, and I was sent an eviction notice. We had moved out long before the expiry and assumed they were doing the formal procedures. Now, during my visa renewal, to my shock, I found a travel ban on my name and a court order to pay almost a full year of rent on an apartment that we did not use. That is a that would yeah that would be a shocker. Bitter pill to have to swallow. Oh crikey! So, to your mind, are you able to explain what has and hasn't happened in this situation so I can get my head around it? Well, this is quite unusual. So the tenant has seemingly left the property and uh, the landlord has waited a year and then pursued her for unpaid, him or her for unpaid rent for that year, despite the fact that the tenant has, uh, in their mind, left. Um, the Ajari having not been re-registered, it raises some questions with me that I would want to explore in further detail with um, with whoever has texted in. But what strikes me is that there is a court order. And if that has not been appealed within the deadline, it will be a final and binding order. So it becomes somewhat uh, academic what I have to say on the matter because you've got a final and binding mm -hmm. court judgment by the sounds of it. If you don't, and if that's a recent judgment, then I would urge you to get in touch with me maybe offline and we can see what we can do to help with that. I can absolutely connect you with, with Andrew. And I guess I'm saying let this be a lesson to everybody when it comes to finalising the departure of, an, of a property. What what should, what should boxes need to be ticked in order to not have something come back and bite you on the bottom? Well, the Ajari is the key, which is why I'm kind of curious to hear that the Ajari was not renewed. Uh, what I would want to see is a formal handover back to the landlord where you've got effectively a, a receipted voucher that they have taken possession of the property back from you. Okay. Please keep us posted on this. As I said, I will connect you with Andrew um, offline um, and send over that number. Um, a message here saying, tenant here um, who's looking to renew for another year. The landlord has not asked for an increase, but for us to move. No eviction or official request has been served. However, last year he forced us to add an additional note in the tenancy reading the following. 
contract expires at the above date without renew. Does this additional note on a signed contract eliminate the need for a landlord to serve us with an official eviction notice? I have filed for an offer and deposit with RERA, which was rejected due to the landlord not responding to it. Interesting situation. Traditionally, incorporating that clause as an addendum to the lease is not binding, and the courts would disregard that. I'm surprised to hear that having filed an offer and deposit and the landlord having not participated, that it was rejected. Because presumably the landlord wouldn't or shouldn't need to. That that negates the whole point of it. Well, exactly. It would benefit the landlord just to stay quiet if they were to be rejected. Mm. So it sounds to me that there is more behind that than meets the eye. But um, yeah, in short, if there is a clause like that in a lease, it shouldn't be valid and binding. And uh, the court should be rejecting uh, an offer a deposit case purely on account of the fact that the landlord has not been engaging. Worth putting in again? I would definitely put that in again. If you want to get in touch, I can make sure it's been done properly and there's not some other reason as to why it's been rejected. Perhaps you haven't paid the filing fee for that. It's a small fee, but it still has to be paid. Okay, really hope that helps. Um, and if you do want Andrew's details, just drop me a little message. Um, no name on this one. Um, Andrew Lyons with us in the studio today, 4001, if you've got any questions. We have had a big pro- focus on property today, but we can help with all aspects of the law, including wills. Um, message here saying, we are homeowners in Dubai, have two young kids. Is it worth registering a will in the UAE? And if so, how is it done? If we don't have one in place, what are the consequences if anything were to happen to one of us or both of us? No one likes talking death admin. I don't at all. But we need to put on our grown-up boys and girl pants and deal with this, especially when you are a parent, when you've got assets such as a home. So I don't know what religion or nationality this this listener is, but are you able to speak to us in quite general terms about when a will is needed? Yeah, I'll keep it quite general because there are distinctions depending on whether you're registering a a Muslim-compliant will versus a non-Muslim-compliant will. I would always say that it is absolutely advisable to register a will because it gives you some degree of certainty. Um, Obviously, there are two certainties in life, as they say, one is death, the other is taxes. So it's not a question of if, it's a question of when we're all going in that direction at some stage or another. So I would always say better to be prepared than to just wait and see what happens. In short, though, for example, if I take the DIFC wills option, which is one which I'm quite familiar with, having been heavily involved when it launched back in 2014, 2015, is that they have five different types of will now available for non-Muslim uh, expats. And um, that could be restricted to, for example, just a property will, which can deal with purely property, one to five properties in max. Uh, Business owners will, financial assets will, a guardianship will, which again, all of these are restricted to doing what they say on the tin. So that deals just with guardianships. And the fifth and final is what's called um, technically a full will, which covers all of the above. Definitely register that, gives you peace of mind that it's all there. If not, what I would say is that the personal status laws have been recently amended. So it does give a greater level of clarity as to what will happen to your assets on your death. And again, that varies dependent on your specifics. If you are married with children, for example, then uh, it would be different than if you're a, an individual with, mm-hmm. with no wife or children. 
not to ask an indelicate question, I presume the full will is more expensive rather than the pieces as such. It is. It's more expensive because it's more comprehensive. To register a full will, you're looking at 10,000 dirhams. If you're going to do a mirror will, which is what we call one for a husband and wife, then you'll get a discount on the second, so it would be 15,000. Contrast that with, for example, a guardianship will, you're looking at 5,000 dirhams for that or 7,500. This is where I try and get some free legal advice myself. So we have a will in the UK. Um, we do have property here. We do obviously have children here. Is it cheaper then just to have it registered as such or do you need to basically pay from scratch? Well, for you to have a valid DIFC will, you have to pay the DIFC's registration fee. So that fee. 15 for the two of us would be what would you That would be the registration fee for okay. those. And uh, there are alternative options. There's the ADGM, but again, those are restricted dependent on you being in Abu Dhabi and uh, you know an employee in the ADGM, for example, mm-hmm. whereas you can also register an onshore will through the the local Dubai onshore courts. But again, the DIFC sounds expensive because it's an upfront fee. The other options have, I wouldn't say hidden costs, but they're back-end fees. So question mark as to whether they're actually commercially more um, attractive. So crunch the numbers. Hope that helps. Hope that helps. If you want any clarity, by all means, reach out. Um, let's go to employment, if you don't mind. Um, Andrew Lyons with us today. Um, anonymous message here saying, I'm an engineer, worked three years in sales at a company. I left that company in January last year with a non-compete agreement. In the same month, I joined a new company in a similar business, but offering different product qualities. However, recently I received a notice from my former employer instructing me to cease contact with and visits to their customers eight months after the NDA's expiration. They claim I violated the non-compete agreement, resulting in financial and reputational damages and they're threatening legal, com- legal action for compensation. What steps should I take and what are my available options in the situation? The notice was sent by the company's HR. Thank you. Yeah, that's a good question. What I would say is there are different facets that have to be taken into consideration when determining whether that is first and foremost a valid non, uh, non-compete provision. For example, the clause within the contract that's being referenced has to be specific. Super specific. Yeah, as regards time, place and the, uh, the nature of the business, for example. Uh, if it's too expansive, then the courts are unlikely to rule that it is valid and binding. This one's curious because you're telling me that the 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 period of non-compete has actually expired for eight months. So it sounds as though that letter before action or that notice that you've received is referencing a breach of non-compete within the timeframes. If it's expired, then you're free to go and work elsewhere, um, whether it is a competitor or not. What I would say generally is that the courts are pretty adverse to ruling that you've breached a non-compete. They don't want to impinge on your right to go and get future employment. And if there are sufficient differences or distinctions, but you do need to be careful about headhunting, for example, specific customers of your former employment. So to this listener then, you know, he or she is asking, what steps should I take? What, what, What do you do? You know, you get this letter and you get a shock and think, I didn't think that I was actually breaching anything at all. And also the time's passed. Is it a case of, oh, I should ignore this and hope this goes away? Or do you need to take anything, any steps yourself? What I would say is, first and foremost, take a look at the clause within the contract and consider whether it is specifically uh, narrow as regards time, place and the nature of the, the business. That will dictate whether it is a binding clause in the first instance. Mm-hmm. Also consider to what extent you are exposed. Have you actually been in contact with those former customers when you fulfilled your former role with that employee, uh, that employer. 
because uh, if you have and it's identifiable as to what loss or damage you might have sustained your former employer, then you may be on the hook, but certainly it's worth looking at in detail. Okay. Andrew Lyons, we've got 30 seconds left, but I want to address this question. It says... Uh, We gave a one-year notice last year to our tenant to move out of our house as we used to use it for personal use. He has moved out. Now we need the money and would like to sell the house. Can the tenant cause a problem in this case? So they, they've occupied. They, the they, 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 they gave the eviction notice saying we want it for personal use. They've yep. now changed their mind saying they want to sell it. Does the tenant have any recourse to say, do you know what? That's not the purpose. That's not what you said when you kicked me out. Yeah, there's, there's a potential for a tenant to file a compensation claim and uh, they can do that with the courts. And I've seen that being, being awarded. You can get up to 12 months rent as compensation if, for example, a landlord has been considered to have you know, being a bit sneaky with his use of the of the rules. And I'm not saying this about this listener. It sounds like circumstances have changed, which they do. Um, but yes, this land, this uh, tenant could have uh, could have recourse should they be unhappy about not living in that house anymore. Well, the, the the safer position would be to actually occupy the premises for a period of time before you then make your next move. There you go, Andrew Lyons. Thank you so much. Where can people find you? In real life and online, if people, we couldn't get to some messages today, unfortunately, but if people want to seek out your advice one-on-one. That was a quick show. Um, it goes fast, right? Yeah, sure does. <laughs> I, my office is based in the Shangri-La Hotel on Sheikhzaid Road, so you'll find Davidson & Co. Law Firm down there. Otherwise, you can reach me on my email, alines at davidsoncolaw.com. Thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate it. And yes, it was indeed a busy one. Hopefully, some useful advice. Certainly learned a lot, and apologies we didn't get to your message. We will put it aside for next week, or indeed, as Andrew said, you can contact him directly. <laughs> And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get it direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.